Welcome everybody to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the fourth episode of The White Lotus season two called In the Sandbox. Turns out all our characters are playing in the sandbox now and we're right in the middle of it, literally smack dab in the middle of this seven episode season. And just three episodes at most, maybe just two episodes away from finding out who ends up dead at the end of this luxurious vacation. Beyond that, make sure you subscribe so you know when we have new episodes. We will be discussing the penultimate episode of The Peripheral later this week, sometime over the Thanksgiving weekend, hopefully by Friday. Depends on, <laughs> this is going to be a crazy week, so it depends on how scheduling goes. In that same episode discussing the finale of Andor, the really excellent Star Wars series. And if you haven't caught up on that, definitely something to binge during this holiday week. And probably somewhere in there, a bonus episode, just a watch guide for the long holiday weekend. If you are taking some time off, we'll be discussing the horror movie Smile, this blockbuster that kind of caught everybody off guard, which is now available to stream on Paramount Plus, as well as the excellent revisionist Western available on Amazon Prime called The English and a bunch of other things that I've seen and not been able to discuss yet. So do expect a bonus episode either before, most likely before, but possibly after thanksgiving as well and you won't miss any of that if you subscribe as usual if you'd like to support the show give us a five-star rating on your podcatcher of choice drop us an email we'd love to hear your feedback need some introduction at gmail.com and of course share our episodes on your social media recommend this to any friends and family that you may be catching up with over this holiday weekend with that all out of the way let's get into my conversation with sona about the white lotus all right so this sona is a lot of middle uh, of story. So I'm going to kind of rush through the plot line, I think, pretty quickly. You can stop me whenever you want to, uh, because then I have some questions for you here at the end. <laughs> or you know what? I have a question with for you right off the top. So maybe I'll end up digressing the conversation. But this episode is called In the Sandbox. We'll find out what that means later on. We see at the beginning that uh, Mia and Lucia are being kicked out of their room there with Cam. Cam only has 1800 to give them for their uh, night together and my question to you is what 1800 what <laughs> because oh this gosh i didn't think about it i mean i assume lira this can't be lira it's like ten dollars if it's 1800 that'd be extremely insulting it's um, 96 dollars. i just did it i happen to be sitting in front of my work computer <laughs> okay wow so okay so that possibly is what they're actually representing there because then uh yeah that would be obviously an insult to be basically a hundred dollars for the night uh, but yeah, I was For thinking two like, of them. yeah, exactly. But I was thinking like 1800, it can't be like euros. That would be <laughs> absolutely insane. Right. Oh, so. I totally forgot about the euro system. Is Italy on the euro? Yeah, they are. They're on the euro. But, oh, uh, wait, I'm looking at Turkish lira. No, no, no. I didn't know the Turkish people used something also currency also called the lira. I think there's a lot of lira actually, believe it or not, across the uh, globe. Okay. So 1800 euro is 1844 US dollars. Yeah, and back in the time when this would be shot, the dollar is very strong now versus the euro. It would have been even more so. So it would have been something like over 2,000, maybe 2,200. That's not bad, right? I mean, I don't know the going rate for this type of service, but... I mean, that is definitely concierge. Uh, not that I have any expertise in this, but I mean, that would be a pretty good salary for the night, I would assume. But Seems fair. <laughs> but that's the reason I bring up the question is that when he gives him the 1,800, he kind of shrugs and says like, sorry, this is all I have. And they seem right. like, oh, my God, are we going to get stuck with this amount of right. money? I think if they let's say that, for example, they were charging a thousand each, which is, I would assume, a lot of money for these women who live in this part of Italy. Right. That um, and not only that, I go back to last week where uh, Dom pays her and she gives her 300. I assume that was dollars or maybe euros. But she gives Mia 300, who seems pretty happy with the 300. And she goes, it wasn't 50 percent. But I assume it's somewhere approaching 50% of what they charged. So I can't imagine they charged this guy, you know, let's say they charged Dom eight or $900 per night and they're charging this guy 1800 and he's like embarrassed as if saying like, sorry, I gave you so little, like what, what are they, what's the going rate? 5,000 euros. That's incredible. That's the question. Or <laughs> that's an know, amazing maybe rate. they discussed something. I don't know, but right. yeah, but, I mean, uh, seems pretty good for a night of <laughs> yeah. work. But. Exactly. I'm very curious to know what that actual amount is because uh, they seemed insulted by the 1800 or maybe Lucia was just hoping for a big score from this, you know, fat cat 
And then she wouldn't. I agree. Their response was like, how could I possibly get by on paltry (laughs) amount of money? So, I mean, having done the the conversion now, it kind of seems like, no, I think you'll be all right. But (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Even Mia, you know, who I think, you know, I assume, you know, didn't actually do everything that Lucia did. Yeah. Right. similar to the previous time, you know, th- this kind of look on their faces of shock as if, yeah. you know, uh, I can't imagine her being like, what do you mean? I might only get five or $600 right. to, lay, to lay in bed with you all night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seems Land like a pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you pay me $5, $500 a night to lay next to you in my underwear, I would do that every day of the week. <laughs> this is what I was saying about the feet pictures. People see it for free in the summer. What do I care? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Anyway, so with with all that out of the way, I'm not even sure what this conversion is, but maybe someone who, if anyone in Italy is listening to this, maybe there's, and the reason I mentioned that is because in Portugal, for example, everybody's on the Euro also, but there are these like informal currency descriptions that they have, like uh, they have something called like un conte, which is like uh, a thousand of the old currency, which maps to, uh, you know, some number of euros. Mm -hmm. So it could be something like that, but still I'm confused by what exactly is going on. Well, and I also am showing my age by saying Italians use the lira. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Remember that whole EU thing that happened? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, who knows? It might be all in collapse now anyway. Fair enough. Given this Italian election, actually, well, let's not get into that digression. <laughs> they are hungover. They're feeling miserable around the campus here. I almost called it a campus, but around the resort. And they decide, oh, you know what? We still have that card to get into Bert's room. So they go in there to freshen up. They accidentally give Bert a little bit of a peep show, which he doesn't mind at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he actually makes a joke later on that he goes, maybe I'll never see another naked woman again. He goes, although I didn't yes. see one this morning. <laughs> yes. And by the end of the episode, we see that Lucia ends up hooking up with Albie. So we'll, we'll, and we'll get into that in much more detail, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a question for you. How intentional was that hookup with Albie? Because I'm a little vague. So, yeah, I was watching this with my husband and we were like, is she working or is right. she just hanging out? And is everybody on the same page about which thing is happening? Because it could be very awkward later. She seems to almost accidentally run into Albie. She does not seem to have any kind of plan at that moment. She just seems to be hanging out. She's been paid. She assumes she's going to get the rest of the money. She's just chilling out at this point. And she's actually even has like kind of a moment later on where she feels bad about like, what am I doing with my life? So it just seems like Mm -hmm. she is taking a break from her usual um, hustling, but then she probably does know who Albie is. And honestly, once again, she just seemed like she was looking for a place to sit down on the beach. And then everything that escalates between her and Albie becomes to be part of this dynamic that we'll see later on, where it's almost like Albie and Portia are like doing this arms race where they both end up getting laid to like get spitefully against each other. Yes. (laughs) And it seems like she's just part of this game. She does not seem to have been like plotting this out from the beginning. As a matter of fact, I do not think she's going to ask Albie for cash at the end of this, although she may ask Dom for more money. To keep it all. I mean, the, the situation is kind of, uh, you would assume Albie would be mortified if he understood right. the whole context yep. of everything. Mm-hmm. Oh so. my God. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Not only kind of going down the same road as, as his dad and that he was naive about it. It's the same exact woman. It's <laughs> literally up with. the yes. same. Yes. <laughs> yes. How traumatizing to him. So she might charge Dom something to keep her mouth shut, basically. Right. Speaking of Bert and Dom and Albie, we see their dynamic once again. Albie wants some time off, but it's so funny that even when he's explicitly saying, I'm going to go to the beach club and I am want to take a break from you guys. And they're like, oh, he's might be, he's trying to hook up with Portia. Good for him. And then like 10 minutes later, they're like, hey, we got a table, Albie. Yeah. <laughs> they show up at the beach club. They show up right exactly where he is. <laughs> so not taking a hint to dad and grandpa. <laughs> and of course, at the beach club, Albie has noticed that Portia is hanging out with Jack. We knew Jack would be back. Well, we didn't know his name was Jack at the time, but we knew this kid would be back. And he's hanging out with his uh, gay uncle and all of his friends. He's kind of in tow with this right. group of guys. Yeah. Which is important here, obviously. We will see that's going to intersect with Tanya's story too. As a matter of fact, that's why they ended up on the beach club, right? These guys run into Tanya again. They like this kind of flamboyant female diva character. So they kind of bring her in tow. Apparently this is what they do when they go on trips. They like look for a candidate to hang out with an older woman. Portia, of course, of course, comes in tow and she re 
unites with Jack. Interestingly, Portia had previously had this conversation at heart to heart with Tanya saying, I'm finally going to like take the plunge with mm-hmm. Albie. I should have done it last night. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm always like this. I'm always like self-sabotaging. I see something and then I get diverted by something else. And after immediately after saying this, <laughs> she sees Jack and that's it. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. the end of it. And she basically hangs out with Jack for the rest of this episode. And of course, the whole entire time side-eyeing at um, Albie and what he's doing. The comic highlight of this whole entire episode is when Mia decides to, she's finally going to do it. Hey, if I have to have sex oh my goodness. <laughs> as a quid pro quo, I'm going to do it now. I don't know if I'm going to have the nerve to do this again tomorrow. So she goes, grabs Giuseppe. She goes, let's go have sex right now. This whole thing is hilarious, right? He says, we can go here. It's this church inside the resort. It's an unconsecrated. It's just basically a tourist spot now, but they're all seeing these different, you know, the, the crucifix. We see these paintings, these frescoes of like Jesus and stuff on the ceiling. So every time they like make eye contact with one of these religious symbols, they have to like change their position because they feel guilty about what they're doing. Mm. And uh, to the point where he can't perform. So she goes and runs back to the beach to find Mia. Mia has a bag full of pills and one of them is Viagra. So, hey, just take one of each. <laughs> and I mean, Giuseppe. listen, did she miss the marketing of the little yes. blue pill? You yeah. should know what you're looking for here, at least in terms of color. Well, none of them are blue. So I wonder if this is some kind of generic Viagra because they all look yellow. So I guess all she right. did, I hadn't considered you know. the possibility of a generic. That's fair. I agree. There were no blue pills. Yeah. I think if there was just an overtly blue pill, she would know. But she's literally on the beach with these two yellow pills going like, which one is this? This yeah. could have been resolved if one of them would just take five steps towards the other one. <laughs> just get closer. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> In the time they're screaming to each other, right. just take five steps so that the person can hear you. Yeah, it's not even like they're trying to be covert about this, considering that, you know, uh, she's screaming on the beach, beach which yes. is Viagra in Italian. <laughs> Based on what we knew from the last week's episode about the pills she has in her <laughs> in her uh, purse, she gives him a Viagra and a Molly, which is probably not a good combination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never tried it myself, but I, I have to assume hilariously, you know, not only does this not go well for them, their sexual encounter doesn't go well, but it also leads to later that night, (laughs) he like collapses behind the piano. I actually suspected all along, like, oh, this is going to be like an accidental play. And in parallel storylines, one is Lucia hooking up with uh, Albie, potentially becoming a revenue stream for her. (laughs) And the other one is Mia accidentally dosing Giuseppe, but maybe gets her behind the piano. But that didn't play out that way, which I was kind of surprised. That was kind of a low-hanging fruit plot-wise that they didn't actually take advantage of. She says, oh, I can do it. She did offer to, (laughs) but Valentina's Mm -hmm. like, no, thank you. I got bigger problems right now. That's the end of that. But then they have no music for the rest of the night. So, I mean, you figure mm-hmm. they at least just, or I actually wouldn't, I kind of suspected that by the end of the night, Mia would just scoot over and start playing. Like who would stop her if she, unless she was a nightmare, <laughs> she, no one would True. stop playing. No, so, but she did not take the bull by the horns there. I mean, there is the funny running joke about how bad the piano player is as well. <laughs> yes. Everybody's like, he's so. worse than usual. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I also found very interesting in that dynamic, Mia's ver- real naivete about how this quid pro quo works. And I just like all of the sexual dynamics in this central moment, the guilt they feel, <laughs> this Catholic guilt, whatever they see, this religious iconography. Uh, I also like the fact that he at one point is overtly a predator, like saying like, you're going to have to do something for me. And then all of a sudden she turns the tables and she takes the power and says, okay, let's go have sex right now. And all of a sudden he can't perform <laughs> because of the mm-hmm. pressure of the, and also her naivete in the way she thinks this works, where like immediately after having sex, she's like, okay, so mm-hmm. where, are these pe- where are these people I'm going to meet? <laughs> yeah. As if he just had them in the hotel with him. <laughs> <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, uh, Tanya is hanging out with this guy, Quentin, who turns out knows some rich guy who lives in Italy and they're hanging out at his compound and they're hanging out at the resort mingling with other folks and this is actually kind of sweet the interactions that tanya and quentin have with each other i like the fact that we get to see jennifer coolidge play a different type of version of herself we are so used to seeing her being this completely over the top character across the board from last season to this season we get to see her you know a kind of quieter side of her here did that win you over at all to, towards her <laughs> fandom? Uh, I guess my silence was because I just can't understand <laughs> the appeal of Jennifer Coolidge. Yeah, I, I'm it. neutral yeah. towards her at best. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I in general, not a huge fan of hers either, to be honest, but I did like the fact that we got to see her play a different role here. Interestingly, though, she does mention to Portia that the reason she likes hanging out with these guys is that women are really not good friends. She talks about how hanging out with too many women, they're just kind of depressing. <laughs> and interestingly, earlier at the very beginning of the episode, actually, we see Daphne say to Harper that she really does not have any women friends, which is very interesting because we just have a reversal, complete reversal out of Daphne's mouth compared to how she felt the sympathy for men because they were all bull elephants who had been kicked out of their mm-hmm. pods. All of a sudden now she's saying like, I have no real girlfriends. They just want to talk about me behind my back. And maybe this is where we wrap the conversation before we get to some questions I have for you, because not only did I find that interesting that he's she's calling out this reversal versus what she said last week. We see that when Harper arrives at the resort, she starts telling Ethan about all this stuff that happened and mentions, I'm practically her best friend now. And by the way, I was right. These people were, you know, this is all an act. They are all cheating on each other. And there's all this other stuff going on. Ethan does confess to her that you were right. Cam just wants to manage my money. But importantly, she finds this condom wrapper in the sofa And uh, what do you think about Ethan here? Because we have not gotten a lot of interiority, like you mentioned earlier, about what's going on in Ethan's head. And he has shown some pretty negative character traits previously, but now we see him multiple times, has an opportunity to confess what happened, lies multiple times about it. And then he starts gaslighting her, being like, why are you acting this way? Why are you like, which I think is the most cruel thing he does. She, at this point, knows full well, she knows that he's hiding something. He is just like, why are you acting like this to me? His attitude is just such a turnoff, I would say. He's just really turned me off to, to his character. I had a completely different read on this. Really? Okay. Yeah. you did. You're great. First of all, I thought as much as I have related to Harper at times, yeah. Yeah. this is the most unlikable I have seen her. Really? When she wow. comes back from this trip and is so satisfied with herself. Yes, yes. That oh, I'm basically her best friend because she can't get along with anyone. Their Mm -hmm. relationship is a sham. She Mm -hmm. is so self-satisfied that her relationship is superior to Daphne and Cameron's relationship. And I think she is someone who she thinks she has the best read on this situation. She knows, but she doesn't, right? We see this, that like, for right or for wrong, they seem to have this understanding. They're cuddling in bed. I missed right. you. We shouldn't spend time apart. I don't think that's insincere. Right. I think this is part of the dynamic they have going of an understanding of who the other person is and a willingness to look the other way at times about things that are like, you know, going to be upsetting otherwise. And is it the healthiest thing? No, but it's working for them. Right. And I don't think they are not being uh, genuine when they portray themselves as a happy couple. First of all, I don't think she's reading the situation right. Second of all, her snugness at being better than them to me was very off-putting. Then on the Ethan thing, I think he is riddled with guilt, actually, because, you know, he has said several times that he tells Harper everything, that he's always honest with Harper. But now Cameron has sworn him to this bro code thing, right? And when you and I talked previously about, do you think he's ever going to tell her? I said, you know, if it were me, I would keep my mouth zipped for the rest of the trip because I don't want to screw up the whole dynamic more than it already is. The second we got on the plane, I would spill it all. For all I know, that's what Ethan is thinking too, that like I have agreed to do this bro code thing. I can keep it going because I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, he got really drunk. He did the drugs and he almost, you know, he kissed the girl. Okay. But like, you know, it could have been a gazillion times worse than what he actually did. Doesn't know the condom wrapper is there. Right. right. I think he's riddled with this guilt and he can tell that she knows something is wrong. Right. But he can't figure out because he didn't do anything really wrong. Right. right? Right. Right. So like, what is it that she's trying to get out of me? I can't tell her what Cameron did. I already told him I'm not going to do that. Right. I didn't do anything so wrong. So what is she so angry about? She clearly is seething. Right. And he makes the point that she's not talking to him. Yeah. Are you ever going to talk to me again? He says. (laughs) Yeah. So I actually have like the complete reverse of this than, than you had. Well, you know, here's the irony of it. I agree with everything you said. I do agree that Harper is so smug in her 
response. She supposedly is turning over a new leaf and is trying to appreciate the moment. She can be like, ha ha, I found this out about Daphne and simultaneously be like, but I sincerely bonded with her at, in those moments, which I think did happen. You see it on her face when there's these, some of these more sincere interactions. And by the way, Daphne is sharing with her and what Harper shares with her at that villa, it's not really as forthcoming as Daphne is to her. So all of that is uh, questionable. Simultaneously, you know, even though I can completely agree with your read on Harper's behavior, I just think that it's not only him covering up for what Cam did. That I understand and why be so forthcoming about stuff that, you know, they're still in the situation together. Harper obviously can't hide her feelings. She's going to let that seed, he's going to let that seed into their interactions from that point on. But when he is saying, for example, like he at one point says, do you want to just not hang out with them? Like, you know, let's just not hang out with them because I think he would be happy with that too, to like not have to hide this from her with them in their presence, in her, his presence. And he's, you know, in, in a way, if uh, Cam brings him into his storytelling, et cetera, he has to now lie to Daphne also. So Ethan would probably be happy with that, but she won't even tell him no way. I, like, let's not see them today because I think that would get, open up a door where Ethan could be more forthright with her. It's the gaslighting part of it where he is like saying like, why are you acting this way? When he knows full well why she's acting this way. Not that he knows she has the condom wrapper, but he knows that she knows something and he's pretending like nothing, there's nothing to tell. But I do have one question before we move on is uh, in regard to the condom wrapper, she does leave it out right there. So that's kind of like the biggest cliffhanger of the episode because he's going to wake up the next morning, probably for his run, mm -hmm. like he normally does way before she does. He's going to walk into the bathroom and see the condom wrapper there. And then he's going to know that she has all these questions. So do you think that conversation happens next week? What, what do you think that portends? Well, I guess it can go one of two ways, right? He can either understand that the jig is up right, and he better come clean. Although at this point, it's gonna look like he's lying even right. if he's telling the truth exactly right because the condom wrapper was in their room she has given him the opportunity to say what really happened and he hasn't taken it and cameron would be a very convenient scapegoat because she knows that he cheats on his wife and blah right. blah right that's going to be a rough one to talk your way out of even if you're telling the truth or this weird dynamic that they have going i could actually see right. him pretending he didn't see <laughs> right. it Yes. Which is insane, but yeah. I think it's equally possible that that's what will happen. It's all this passive aggressiveness. Yes. And that's definitely been his performance up until this point. So yeah, that, you're right. <laughs> that could potentially be the situation. I do hope for their benefit of their relationship, <laughs> these fictional characters, <laughs> that uh, he just does kind of admit to everything next next time. Agree, but I think a lot of damage has been done. Yes. That oh, yeah. He's not going to be able to undo by telling the truth. And I think, you know, a lot of what we saw this episode, I think, was she had come back with that smugness of like, no, our relationship is better than theirs. And I think the rest of the episode is her trying to deal with like, oh, my God, maybe I'm in the same relationship that this lady's in. And I just haven't realized it. You know, the the idea of like right. she was so sure they were superior, but maybe it's just a different version of Cameron and Daphne. Yeah. So I have a whole theory I want to run by you here at the end. But before we get there, I have another thing that I wanted to bring up, which was the introduction of gayness <laughs> into this show at this episode. Mm -hmm. So the first one is we see that Valentina, I, I had almost said it last week, but I didn't want to be like, well, every single time you see a woman basically pushing, you know, blowing off a, a guy, she must be a lesbian. Because <laughs> it's like kind of like a, the slur that these men call, call out at them as they walk away. That, but we see Valentina seems to have some kind of crush on uh, Isabella, right? And she even buys her a, a pin for her to wear from this jewelry store where she says that she loves the jewelry there, which by the way, is also the recommendation that Isabella makes to Dom when he's looking to buy his wife some jewelry. Yeah. We also, of course, see this group of gay guys who are friendly with Tanya and seem to give her like kind of a reprieve from her own <laughs> stresses of uh, her own persona, her personality. Uh, and then, you know, they seem to be so far, not you know any kind of uh, nefarious uh, right. <laughs> force. They do have this uh, Trojan horse, a straight young guy <laughs> who is you know screwing, <laughs> screwing things up for Albie though. <laughs> oh, and of course we have uh, going back to the circumstance with Cam and Ethan. We have that whole waking up in the morning where Cam gets into bed with him and starts making jokes that he they're going to hook up with each other, uh, to which uh, Ethan <laughs> throws up. 
<laughs> when he, which, I mean, he's, he's throwing up because he's hung over, but I don't think it's a coincidence that that's the moment he decides to run to the bathroom and throw up. You know, all of a sudden we've introduced this into the plot. And I, what do you think that means? Do you think that this is like a pivot in the show or do you just think that, you know, this is obviously this season of the show is about sexual relationships. And of course, gayness is simply just one of those uh, ver- variations, right? I saw it more as the latter. What did you think? I assume that we're so late in the game. We're right in the midpoint of the show, by the way. This probably is the show, that the episode that had the lightest plot. It's like a little disruption to all of these heterosexual mm-hmm. heterosexual dynamics we've been seeing on the show. It allows the second half of the show to break up some of these couplings that we've seen uh, in the first half, right? Like instead of being such, mm-hmm. you know, such, such traditional dynamics, let's say. Other things we see here, we see more ominous sea. We have that shot of that cave down. So much. We see the water. This is, once again, these kind of insert shots. We saw them at night before. Oh, and another place we see the sea as well is the story that is told to Tanya by Quentin about the, they want to go out to this small island that's right there where there's a mansion on top. And apparently it's a tourist attraction now. But the story behind it is that I assume the mob is with these uh, this nefarious group of people who are trying to pressure this widow to sell her land. No matter how much money they offered her, she refused and refused and refused. And then one day someone pushed her off of the top of that island peak. And now, of course, it's a tourist attraction for everybody to, to see. But I do wonder <laughs> about them bringing up this story and not only just talking the story, the music changes. We actually see these beautiful shots of the island itself with the water crashing against the rocks. It seems to be another one of these omens we're seeing in the show. And it does make me wonder what this might portend. We saw this reading that Tanya had of this potentially dangerous future she had. Is this maybe a future for Tanya? I felt like, honestly, throughout this show, this episode, I felt like there was a lot of kind of harbingers of doom feeling <laughs> yes, type yeah, things yes. mm-hmm. of like setting up a lot of people that might end up dead for various reasons. So I'm um, this whole idea of this villa in Palermo, like seeing a party house, but maybe there's a dark underbelly to it of some sort. There's, you know, a Harper who seems like she could murder someone any second. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> you know, it just, it felt like there was a lot of darkness being set up. Yeah. I'm not sure. I, I don't think it would be something as obvious as like Greg comes back and shoves Tanya off of the ro- top of the rocks. But I do think that we're going to see something traumatic happening, uh, obviously at sea, but maybe that is where the bodies originate from, right? Just, right. Okay. So here's my big theory that I want to get your read on. So I started thinking over the course of this episode, when I saw the conversation between Portia and Tanya, if we are starting to see mirroring of characters in the show. So for example, when Tanya tells Portia, I was in your shoes when you were younger, is Portia seeing a mirror of herself in the future in Tanya? Is the De Rossi's, for example, Albie is now going to become a more toxic male figure. And this is maybe where Dom was. Dom was Albie when Mm -hmm. he was younger and eventually became Dom and then eventually becomes Bert right over the course of his Mm -hmm. lifetime. And then also, like you were saying earlier, is Daphne seeing Harper as I was you Mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago and Harper's afraid she's going to become Daphne. And the same thing with Ethan and Cam is part of the reason that Ethan is throwing up is not only the fact that he's hungover, but as part of his nausea, the idea that I'm going to become that person. Now that I have money, mm-hmm. now that I have privilege, I'm going to become a Cam in the future. Or that he wants to be Cam. Like he wishes he could have done what Cam did the night before. And if you could say also one more, just to throw it in there, was Lucia this naive girl that goes, hey, why don't I give this a shot? And then, you know, 10 years mm-hmm. later, mm-hmm. she is uh, doing this professionally and thinking like, when, when can I stop doing this? Mm-hmm. And me is just at the beginning of that journey. I think that's a really perceptive observation. One that I guess I was starting to pick up on on some level with my comments about Harbor and Daphne. We are seeing different versions. I'm not entirely sure about the Portia Tanya one, although I do see your point, but it's not something I think that would have naturally occurred to me. But it's the just others, in their conversation. Honestly, I don't see them yeah. as parallel people. It's more the conversation that made me think of it. To be sarcastic about it, I'm kind of equally disinterested in both of them. So that <laughs> I know you have, don't like either one of them. That yeah, could be a way that might have something to do with it as well. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think it's a very astute observation as far as the others. And I think really interesting 
visually too that like gosh what was it that i was watching it was the the fleischman thing that yeah. you know when we talked about when as we're talking about fleischman is in trouble that idea of the block universe of everything happening mm-hmm. at yes. once yes. yes yes so it's like you're seeing a different version of yourself at the same time that you're living is different <laughs> one right. version of yourself someone else is living a different version of yes. yourself yes. kind of especially with the three generations yep at the exact same point in time here's the young me the middle-aged me and the elderly <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a really interesting parallel I'd not considered, and we'll be discussing pa- Fleischer Fleischman later in this episode. I was talking about mirroring, but like you said, maybe this is parallel lives. These are people at this resort suddenly seeing themselves at different points in their lives, <laughs> all next to each other. Right? It was pretty pretty fascinating. Yeah, very very cool. Any revisions to your Death Watch list? <laughs> Oh gosh, like I said, I feel like this time they set up to like it really could be any of these people. Yeah. <laughs> Dad. I feel like still the the two couples just have this darkness that something is going to go very ugly there. But then I question the introduction of this new group of men and the idea of them being on a boat to go yes. to Palermo. Mm-hmm. And like, it seems to be inviting the idea that someone could end up dead in the water. Yep. The Albi thing is interesting you know i still am a little bit up in the air i think from what little you know we've talked about we try not to read too much about the show because it'll influence what our own independent thoughts are but i have heard that some people see him as like this incel type guy yes Mm -hmm. and i thought you know i had said before i wasn't sure where he stood on that and this week i thought it was kind of be would be confirmed with what happens when he sees the other guy talking to portia yeah, and actually, Ethan actually has been of, called an incel too, right? So that's another mirror. Right, yes. I was kind of pleasantly surprised that he was willing to just change course and be like, well, here's a girl who does want to talk to me. Why don't I spend time with her? Exactly. I felt like that was very contrary to the incel idea, at least as far as I know it, which would be more like pouting in the corner of like, of course, she doesn't want a nice guy like me, right? right. Like mm-hmm. he decides like, well, you know, I can still make my own choices and now I'm kind of back on the side of like, no, he's just really been affected by what he's seen with his father and is trying to, as so many of us try, not to become the things that we dislike in our parents. Right. My point being that incel type guy, I could see somehow ending up in a very dark situation. Yeah. If he's not that incel type guy, though, maybe not. So where is my death watch? I'm not Mm -hmm. entirely sure at this point. How about you? I was saying that all of a sudden my death watch had returned to unfortunately me and Lucia because Dom is now going to be upset about what's happening between Lucia and Albie. And maybe they start blackmailing him for cash and that could lead to ugly things at the end. Because at the beginning I was like, oh, is he going to have to kill her them off to shut their mouths or at least threaten them? And um, and then I was like, well, no, that seems to be over. But I'm like, well, maybe not because <laughs> now it's come back again via Albie, right? Mm. But you know what I was thinking about? Speaking of incels, <laughs> if we consider Portia is an incel, <laughs> this is all, I literally just made this all up so I could be 100% wrong on this, mm-hmm. but I want to throw it out there because we didn't get to talk to, about Jack that much. I was like, you know, here's this episode called In the Sandbox. Jack says that he's fun. If you want to play, yes. hey, I am the right person to have in the sandbox with you. And what I started thinking over the course of this conversation with you is maybe Portia is not actually built for this, right? And imagine he has now hooked up with her. She is heading out to this villa, you know, because Tanya is still going to be invited. She will be invited as well. But I wouldn't be surprised at all if Jack like got to play with her. He's good with that. And now he is going to be at that uh, villa with some other girl, a completely different girl that he's hooking up with. And she's going to be like, hold on a second, what's going on here? And of course, now Albie is no longer an option for her. Does she do something, uh, you know, questionable out at that villa? Hmm. Answer that question, but also give me your impressions of Jack, because we didn't really spend much time talking about him at all. Yeah, you know, maybe I was not giving him sufficient attention, but he just seems like your standard, like he's a guy on vacation in a beautiful (laughs) place and he wants to have fun and nothing wrong with that. Right. I mean, maybe there is more to him, but I didn't see it (laughs) yet. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Oh, and and I don't think they want you to, right? I mean, this is uh, the fantasy of, I think intentionally, he's like the fantasy of the hookup, right? He's just like 
I want no strings attached. I'm just hanging out. He's cute. He, he's in good shape. You know, he's just like, he's just totally playful. And he's like, I don't want to talk about your hangups. I don't want to talk. I just want to have fun. Right. So it's just like, Hey, perfect. Hey, nothing wrong with that. (laughs) This is, you know, like, Hey, this is exactly the type of, you know, hookup you want to have on this type of vacation. But I do wonder if, you know, it might be more complicated by the time we get to the end. Toby Fleischman awoke one morning inside the city he'd lived in all his adult life. Many thoughts had crossed Toby's mind in the hours since he was informed that his ex-wife dropped the kids off a full day earlier than expected. At four in the morning. Four in the morning. Sorry, I'm angry all over again. Yikes, dude. Toby was forced to ask the question that occurred to him nearly every few minutes since his separation. How did I get here? Todd says you don't play tennis or golf? Mm, Yeah, I play basketball. Good for you. I did not become a doctor to get rich, okay? I did it to live a meaningful life. Money doesn't buy you happiness. Oh, Toby, of course it does. What, are you crazy? You reached Rachel Fleischman. Is she still gone? I'm starting to think that it hasn't really gone on this long, you know? What if something has happened to her? So, Sona, you also checked out the first two episodes of Fleischman is in Trouble on Hulu. I did, yep. And this is based on the best-selling novel, which I had heard of, but did not read. Same. Which came out, when was that? Like 2017, maybe? Sounds right. But, um, you know, I think you're in the same situation as me, unfortunately. <laughs> who has time to read? Who has time to um, focus on anything, really, <laughs> as time flies by? So that sounds right, but I'm not sure. And honestly, this is not the type of thing I probably would gravitate to but the reviews whereas it has my name written all over it i think (laughs) i think so actually (laughs) (laughs) but i had seen very very positive reviews for it and i also thought it was interesting to discuss it as part of our coverage of white lotus since we are basically talking about um rich white people problems (laughs) sure not that i would know but okay Well, I think that's kind of interesting. Believe it or not, I had, we were at a birthday party yesterday and we had multiple conversations about this very show. <laughs> because, really? Yeah. Because, it well, these just are all, came out. So that's interesting. Well, more about the concept of it and uh, maybe the okay. book as well, because these are all doctors that we were with. Okay. And they were kind of sympathizing with, I think, what I found so interesting about this show as someone who really, this was not even on my radar until maybe a week ago, but I really, really enjoyed it. Basically is the long and short of it. And what I thought was so fascinating about it was you would think it would be so specific that it isn't valuable for, for someone like me to watch. Uh, I'm not in medicine, although my wife works in medicine. And like I mentioned, I was at a party where there was a bunch of doctors there and they were actually talking about some of the, and we on, we, that we see in this performance by Jesse Eisenberg in the lead role where you are rich, you are successful by all standards of what your possible expectations could be. And somehow it's still not enough. (laughs) And I think that is something that at at some point in your life, you start feeling when you supposedly have been successful and still there is more or maybe less (laughs) potentially. And maybe that's the question you're trying to deal with. Uh, Basically, we're talking about a midlife crisis, (laughs) but amongst someone who is very successful, you know, to all appearances. I mean, I do think this is a very specific thing in that, and I could be wrong, but in my mind, anyway, the perception of being in medicine or a a doctor has changed a lot in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think when we were young, this was the best thing you could possibly be. Everybody wants their parents to, to, everybody's parents want them to be a doctor. How proud would you be if your kid was a doctor? I think partly because, um, the measure of success has changed to what material things you can get from what you have accomplished in your life, partly because, and this is very far afield, I think, as to what this show is doing, but I feel like insurance companies (laughs) have really affected (laughs) what it means to be a doctor. And they do kind of even touch on that point in one of these episodes where he says, insurance will only pay for 15 minutes, but you need to keep talking past the 15 minutes. Right. So I think a lot of things have kind of conspired to make being a doctor not have the aura of, you know, you've reached the top echelon that it used to have. Yeah. First of all, to, to directly to that point, my wife complains about this all the time. You have these minutes where you have to, you're allowed to 
meet with your patients, the patients oftentimes are talking about things that are irrelevant to uh, the diagnosis. However, the insurance companies grade your performance not on outcomes, but on customer satisfaction. And mm-hmm. so they have to cater to the patients, give them what they want so that they get positive reviews basically from the patients. And that's not necessarily good for diagnosing the patient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we probably know from our elderly parents that 90% of what they're talking about is completely <laughs> irrelevant. I deal with this all the time with my you know, wife, not a, not a doctor, but she's a, a physician assistant. So she oftentimes is asked by our relatives and friends to diagnose I would imagine. Yeah. And my parents, for example, my mother will talk about half an hour about some something that absolutely like logically could not possibly pertain to uh, the issue. By the way, I have the same problem working in technology. All that is to say, I could appreciate the fact that, you know, you are spending this time uh, feeling like you're not doing the job you signed up for. But I think we could. And once again, this is so specific in a way. So I thought it wouldn't appeal to me. But I can very much relate to this person who's much richer than I am, <laughs> who's probably very unappreciative of the things he has in my mind. But I think you get to a certain level in your life, regardless of how wealthy you are. But you, the, the basic ten, you know, um, strains of being able to pay your bills week to week, month to month, have alleviated at some point. And then you start asking yourself, like, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> and I think that's what the show is kind of dealing with. Mm-hmm. So this is a story of um, the, the lead. Toby is the star of this, Toby Fleischman, and he has just gone through a divorce. Very funny that he's suddenly on these dating apps and having more sex than he's ever had in his life. And he mm-hmm. is at this crossroads where he's thinking, oh, I want to spend more time with my kids, but they really are getting in the way of my social life as well. Mm-hmm. And then he's gotten this divorce from Claire Danes, uh, who is the other, I guess, main character here, although we will... She hasn't had that much screen time yet, but I'm a sh- I assume you get Claire Danes. She's going to be a much bigger part of the remainder of the show. Right. As a matter of fact, from my understanding of the book, I think the book becomes mostly about her at some point in time. So I guess- Very interesting. That remains to be seen. What did you think of this portrayal of her? I honestly, from his perspective of her and his friend's perspective of her, I really, really hated her. She seemed like the type of person who is incapable of appreciating- this incredible wealth and success that they have. But then when you see the actual flashbacks, she does not seem to be the monster that he, you know, when he's speaking about her, he seems to be, she seems to be a one-dimensional monster. But then when you see these flashbacks, she seems to be very conflicted. She does not seem to be unreasonable in those moments. They have a lot of tender romantic moments in those flashbacks. Mm-hmm, and, they do. And that could all be his nostalgia, which I also think is very fast is, is sure. fascinating. I, I can't get my bearings on the show, but not in the bad way. I feel like you know, memory itself can be um, a comfort and uh, cudgel in a way. So I think it, it's interesting that it's showing both of those things at the same time. So I'm very, very interested in the show so far. I love this show. Like I said, <laughs> I feel like it has my name written all over it. I love all of the actors in this show. I love the plot of this show. I love that it's set in New York City. I love that there are so many things I can relate to. I just love everything about it right now. Um, The Claire Danes character specifically, I did not hate her, but I also think that I have very specific points where I can relate to the culture that this show takes place in, Mm -hmm. that I'm not sure how well that would translate outside of New York City. For example... I thought about sending my kid to the 92nd Street Y for summer camp <laughs> yes. last year. And then I looked at the cost and I said, I don't think so. I think he's going to go to the <laughs> Vanderbilt Y around the corner that costs half that. So, <laughs> And I even think now I think about this coming summer and I think, well, maybe we could go for two weeks at the 92nd Street Y, but certainly not all eight. That would be beyond. <laughs> so I just think there are a lot of very... New York specific references here that I found just really entertaining, but that also, you know, that idea of just keeping up, keeping up, keeping Mm -hmm. up that infiltrates you that like everyone else is in the Hamptons for the summer. Why am I not in the Hamptons? And even when he says, you know, he tries to sell the kids that like summer is the best time in the city. (laughs) And I completely agree with that. Actually, I love summer in the city because everybody goes to the Hamptons. And someone, it was at the daughter that says it smells like garbage. 
also true. <laughs> Absolutely, it does exactly. smell like garbage in the exactly. summer. Yes. Garbage, urine, and also I think it's the best <laughs> time to be in the city. Right. So I really enjoyed those types of references. And I could sympathize with Claire Danes in that we don't live on the Upper East Side, but I am very familiar with that culture and the pressures of that culture and yep. the completely unimaginable amount of wealth that right. some people right. have. Right. When you don't have it, it's almost like your mind can't comprehend the things that these people have as just like a day-to-day lifestyle. I feel like it's all very well portrayed, very accurately portrayed, and I'm really enjoying that about it. As a couple that is trying to be part of that world, I can sympathize with what that would feel like. Yeah. And I think that's where, in a way- Not I think- that I'm part of a couple that wants to be, wants to be <laughs> right. part of that world, to right. be clear. Claire yeah. Danes and Jesse Eisenberg want to be, or at least Claire Danes does. Jesse Eisenberg is still in the middle of it. Yeah. I think, well, I think he is interesting, even this er, in this early going, that he's someone who is even self-critical of this. He is supposedly on the surface annoyed by this um, status chasing. Uh, however, then you see him taking advantage of some of those perks, and he does like those perks, right? And hey, that Hamptons house was nice. <laughs> exactly, and uh, and who doesn't want to, you know you live in a city where it smells like urine all the time in the summer? Who doesn't want a little break from that? Oh, and what I loved was I always hated that apartment with the high ceilings. Yeah, everybody <laughs> hates high ceilings. We all know that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stand a place that feels like I have room to breathe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Give uh, me that eight foot post-war standard ceiling. I'll be happier feeling like exactly. I'm in a shoebox. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so standard in, in everywhere. Not just yes, the street, but... so standard. Oh, quick question for you about that as well. So once again, not that I have anywhere near this level of wealth and you know, it's, it seems exorbitant. And I can imagine, by the way, that some folks would be turned off by the very concept of the show. And that is another thing that I find interesting. All the critical reactions have been very, very positive. When I look at the audience reaction, there are very positive reactions to it saying like, oh, this is yet another satire on the rich, which I think dovetails nicely with like the White Lotus show that we're watching as well. But then you have certain people being like, who gives a crap about these rich people? Like who cares? I can sympathize with that reaction as well. What I would say is it's not the fact that they're rich people who are getting a comeuppance or something. Like I mentioned before, I think there are some universal themes that no matter how rich you are, that I think everybody at some point gets to a point in their career, if they're lucky enough, where they feel like I have achieved what I thought I wanted to achieve and you get there and you're unsatisfied, right? And I also like the ambiguity of everything here. You know, I feel like in shows in general and in movies, uh, more so with television though, there's really no space for ambiguity. And I really enjoyed the fact that you have these open conversation or narration where Jesse Eisenberg says he was alone, his wife was missing, his kids were gone, and he was totally alone, and he was totally heartbroken. And then he goes, but he was alone. <laughs> and he could like mm-hmm. go on dates, and he could hang out with his friends and go drinking in the park. And it's like, how? who has not been in that situation where you're like, everyone is away from me right now. My family's away from me. I'm so lonely. And like, thank God, everybody's away from me. <laughs> and those two things oh are gosh. coexisting at the exact same time. Oh, especially when you're a parent, for yes. sure. Yes. yes. I mean, that is like one of the fundamental dilemmas of being a parent of <laughs> right. like, when will this child go to sleep so that I can lay in my bed and look at pictures of the day we had together? <laughs> exactly. How much I think about how much I love this kid, but why won't he go to sleep? <laughs> exactly. Like I just have one hour to myself. We literally had this joke with a couple that we went to have a, a date night with, with them. I just need someone to babysit the kids so we can just get a little time to ourselves. And then we go out for drinks and we're talking about the kids the whole entire time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think also, I mean, listen, I am somewhat a part of this lifestyle, certainly not at this level of wealth, whatever. So maybe I don't feel that immediate resentment because even though my friends aren't people like this, I certainly know people like this and, you know, come across people like this. And so it's not unfamiliar to me, but also I think there are other aspects that they're getting at. If you look at um, the Lizzie Kaplan character, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, she is dealing with, I think, a very middle-class level of that kind of ennui 
of like, well, you know, I'm a stay at home mom in the New Jersey suburbs with a lovely home. And what on earth am I doing all day? Right. Like, and she was a writer, right. For like New York magazine or something. So she had this particular career, mm -hmm. probably had a completely different vision of what her life was going to be. And now she is very content in being the suburban wife, but that is a completely different person than she was 10 years earlier. She's our narrator yeah. too, by the way, right. She's our narrator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess she's a surrogate for this um, author who wrote this. Uh, right. By the, by the way, her this author's name. I'm going to pull it up here. Give me one. Taffy, something hyphenated. Which isn't her, in her actual name, but it's her ta ta Taffy Brodeser Ackner, but uh, which isn't her actual name, but it is her pen name. And apparently, oh, she I didn't was, realize that. That's funny. Okay. Yeah, I think she's been using that name. Taffy was like a nickname she got when she was a kid. This is just from reading like a Wikipedia bio on this woman. But uh, apparently, she was like a celebrity journalist, some pretty high profile uh, magazines. And this is her first novel. So she did. Mm -hmm. She did like a, a profile on Brad Pitt and a profile on some other. So in general, she this is what that was her job. But she had some more high profile ones. So I do find it interesting to think about her biography where she's a writer like Lizzie Kaplan. She did have a family, mm -hmm. which kind of maybe mm -hmm. di digressed her career a little bit. And maybe that's when she had the opportunity to write this book, by the way. But beyond that, she also was probably hanging out these celebrities and interviewing them at their compounds where they lived. And she probably felt like, I am a successful, uh, jet-setting, glamorous New York City socialite or, or hanging out with these people. And yet I am like the poorest one of them. Right? So mm -hmm. she's on the outside, even though she's on the inside. right? I think that's kind of where his character is as well. And I, anyway, I, I look forward to them continuing to explore this topic. I thought it was very, very interesting. Yeah, I thought this was great. I thought it was really fun, interesting, clever, you know, visually. I always love seeing the city. I like the little initial thing they did with the, the city upside, being down. upside down because yep. his world is upside down. Yeah. And I'm, I'm dying to know. I, my husband watched this with me and we were like, she was taking a nap in Central Park. I said, right. she must be dating someone. Nobody just takes a nap in Central Park without someone conscious to, <laughs> Nearby. to watch them. Maybe she was with her boyfriend. Like, you don't, unless something is very, very wrong, you should I not it was, be all alone. I thought it was bad, like that she wasn't taking a nap casually in the park, that she was like passed out in the park. Right, so right but they weren't concerned. Like it was a really great cliffhanger. Yes, I, I agree. <laughs> So <laughs> I wanted to track down spoilers in the book. I'd go like, like, what's going on with her right now? Yeah, so I really loved a lot about this. Uh, the other school parents, like, I just a lot of it resonated for me, and a lot of it, you know, I just think was very well done, even if it didn't resonate. This is a story about everything. It's about life and marriage and how young love <laughs> can become old resentment and money. You can't get one of these for less than ten grand and dissatisfaction. I feel like I'm not alive. You chose this! And jealousy, ambition, career. I don't even have time to get a divorce. Parenting, nostalgia, and lifelong friendship. The world is your oyster. Lick it up. We just saw Rachel. What? Oh, a quick question I had for you was based on some of the financial details here. He's making $300,000 a year as a surgeon. She is, I'd assume, making a somewhat similar salary considering she's very mm -hmm. successful as his agent. And I know this is like a flashback in this particular scene I'm about to bring up. So it's not at their current level, because I think at this point she has a house in the Hamptons, so she must be pretty wealthy from her um, career. But in that earlier conversation, when the kids are a little bit younger, so we have to assume just maybe two or three years earlier, they're making comparable salaries and they literally cannot buy a house. They have to keep or buy a condo. They have to keep renting. And uh, he even calls out that I would be wealthy in any other neighborhood in this country mm -hmm. except for this mm -hmm. one. And what I was going to ask you is, is that legit that you can't even buy a house if you make, let's say the two of them are making over half a million dollars a year, maybe 600,000 a year. You can't afford a house on the Upper East Side. Is that is that true? <laughs> is that, do you think that- Well, that depending on the zip codes that you want to live in, yes, that could very well be true depending on the zip code. I mean, if you don't want to live, it sounds nice to say you live so close to the river, 
Right. <laughs> but generally, the further east you go, closer to that river, it will become less expensive. You know, also, New York City is full of co-ops and condos that each have their own regulations, especially if you're looking at a co-op, they're going to require a minimum of 20% down. And then they're going to look at your finances. You know, there's some calculus they do. There's an equation of how much you're supposed to have in the bank, as opposed to like how much your mortgage is. And you're supposed to have the value of the apartment times X. You're supposed to have liquid. And there's a lot that goes on there. But yeah, no, to me, I don't question it. Given that we have no idea what their family backgrounds are. Right, because right. there is so much generational wealth in this city. Right. And so, you know, a lot of people pass down apartments or their parents help them buy the apartment or their parents are the guarantors on the apartment or whatever it may be. Assuming they have no familial wealth and, you know, are both very educated, haven't had a chance to accumulate that kind of savings. Yeah, it didn't ring as untrue to me. Yeah, I mean, I assume they wouldn't put that detail in there and make it preposterous, but I mean, it just seems outlandish that, <laughs> I mean, I understand how expensive it could be in the city, but it still seems that you know, once again, if she, if she was not working and he was making that money, I'd be like, yeah, in the city, it's so expensive. Yeah. $300,000 is like a middle-class income <laughs> in the city. But if they're both, you know, she's a careerist woman. So she is probably, you know, even at that point in the timeline, probably earning similar salary to him. It'd be very hard to imagine not being able to afford a, a, a house. Right. So. But, I uh, technically yeah. afford versus like putting yeah. yes. everything together on paper to get the, and the debt you might have and all the other things, is the yeah. difference. It's yeah. But also what we see of this character, right, is that she does want to live in the prime real estate Upper East Side. Mm -hmm. um, she doesn't want to live on East End Avenue, York Avenue. She wants to live on Park or Lex, if not Madison or Fifth. So um, it definitely it would not surprise me. I mean, look at that apartment they were looking at, right? Um, that was amazing with the yeah. floor to ceiling windows and mm -hmm. you know, yeah. oh, the yeah, two high ceilings. So, so I don't think she's one to settle, I guess, for something lesser. He has, yeah. you know, a perfectly nice standard two bedroom, yeah. right? Yeah. Now that they've split up and the running joke throughout these episodes is like, oh, this apartment. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, the daughter doesn't even want to. It's embarrassing for her to bring her friend there. Of course, these kids are spoiled in a degree that I can't possibly imagine. But going back to that conversation I just had yesterday, even though these are doctors who are very wealthy by even my standards uh, or anyone's standards, obviously. And by the way, their kids, uh, it was a birthday party. They seem to be very down to earth. They do not seem to be like these monstrous brats, but they talk about the fact that their parents were working class. Most of them are immigrants and they had very little when they were growing up, very few toys. They were talking about how they had uh, one set of matchbox cars that they had kept since they were little kids and they gave it to their boys to play with and the boys lost them in a day. Uh, mm -hmm, because there's mm -hmm. really no value because it's just right. everything is disposable, right? Right. And I think that this is another thing the show makes me think about, even though it's obviously in this extremely heightened uh, level, but it's just this question you ask yourself, you know, obviously you work to give your kids all of these extra perks that, you know, we couldn't possibly imagine when we were younger, but it, like, are we creating little monsters by, by doing that? And I think that's something that we all worry about, right? As parents. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was joking because we have taken our child on not many vacations, but the vacations we take are generally, you know, miles and miles nicer than the vacations I took growing up. I didn't really even take vacations growing up. We just went back right. to India every mm -hmm. other year to see right. family, right? Which right. is kind of a vacation, but not really, especially when you're seven years old. So I mean, I, we were laughing because we recently were in Miami Beach at the Fountain Blue. And I was like, this kid at five years old thinks you get to go to the Fountain Blue and walk out to the children's pool and someone puts together your chair for you and lays out your towel for you and asks you yep. if you want a drink. Yep. I mean, come on. Like that is not something I want him getting accustomed to necessarily. Right. You know, like on the one hand, I'm proud to be able to provide that for him. But on the other hand, that's not normal for a five-year-old to, to have someone putting the towels or arranging the towels on his beach chair. <laughs> I literally, to this day, have never gone to Disneyland, for example. And uh, my uh, in-laws have, they live in Florida and they've had a timeshare for like their whole entire lives. And this isn't even like, they're not even incredibly wealthy. They just, you know, have saved some money and done, but they're, you know, upper middle class at most. 
but they live in Florida and they've had this timeshare they've had for their whole entire lives. And it works with this timeshare in Orlando. So every single year Mm -hmm. they get the timeshare, they book it for the spring break. And Charlotte goes down there with Kim, my wife, to go to Disneyland. And it's like an annual trip. And it's like, I have, first of all, I've never been there in my life. First of all, I want to make clear you're talking about Disney World, not Disney World, yes, Land, I always, which I is even confuse. more. Yes. <laughs> I, yes, I even, uh, I, I, I confuse those all the time. So Disney World, correct, down in Orlando. And now she's been to basically all the parks in Orlando because they don't keep going to the same one over and over again. Right. But I just find it very funny that there are kids in her class, for example, that have never been there. And she's just like, that's where I go every spring, right? Oh, so- well, let me let me tell you <laughs> this one, which we have been to Disneyland once and Disney World once and only because we had a family friend, a, a member of the oh, family right. rather mm-hmm. that worked for Disney. So right. Right. there was a lot of inside mechanisms going on that allowed this trip to happen. Last spring, when I was dying to find something somewhere to send my kid during spring break, so that um, I could actually, you know, go to work. I found this robotics camp. We had actually just been at Disney World for the February break, where, um, you know, thanks to my family connections, we had a really lovely trip. And we're waiting in line at the robotics camp to go in and everybody's kind of making that awkward small talk. And they all started talking about what was your favorite part of Disney World? (laughs) And I thought like, oh my goodness, we got this one in just under the wire. At least my kid had been there in February so he could participate in this conversation two months later instead of having to say, oh, I haven't been to Disney World, which would have right or wrong caused me some embarrassment as a parent that I hadn't taken my five-year-old to Disney (laughs) World yet. Not even, you know, like he's lived a life and not been there. I mean, five years old. Yeah. It's just, it's just hilarious once again to the the idea that you know, we're lucky enough to be able to provide it for them, which is obviously what we all aspire to do. (laughs) But then I always wonder to myself, like, do, am I just making them appreciate everything less (laughs) by trying to do so much Right, because they think this is normal. Right, right. On that depressing note, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Sure, no problem. Talk to you later. (laughs) Talk to you later. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye.